It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. And welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. I'd like to welcome uh, someone to the show today who you may be familiar with. Uh, his name has certainly been around in uh, the area of theater as well as books and uh, and maybe even stand-up comedy. Once. <laughs> and not around here. Far, far away. And, you know, it, it's interesting because, as you can see, Drew Hayden-Taylor is very quick to jump in and eager to jump in. Uh, he is a man who is not afraid uh, of speaking. Uh, he certainly, as long as I've known him, has always been someone who has, uh, has been willing to jump in. He's a man who has a great sense of humor, but he's also a man of great depth, and he's been around a long time and uh, written over uh, 17 documentaries. He's also got about 70, what do you get, 70 books under your... No, no, this, this book uh, we're talking about is my 33rd, but I've had about, uh, actually, 90 productions of about uh, 20 plays. Yeah. And, uh, Drew, when did you actually start getting into this line of work? Uh, I was actually, I think, about 25 yeah, a lot of people ask me, you know, you, did you always want to be a writer? Did you always grow up wanting to be that? And I did, but my grade eleven English teacher and my mother actively um, opposed that or, or dissuaded me from that. So I gave up wanting to be a writer for for almost uh, ten years, for about seven to ten years. And it wasn't until my mid twenties that uh, the writing bug chased me down, uh, booted me in the behind, and, and reminded me I was a writer. Mm. Funny how that happens, isn't it? Who, who, God knows where I'd be. I always said I'd end up uh, um, working at the band office on the reserve embezzling money from the Department of Indian Affairs. But I guess it was not meant to be. <laughs> I guess not. But, uh, you know, just to introduce Drew a little further, I'll give you a little bit more background about him. He's an Ojibwe from Cur Curve Lake First Nation, and that is in Ontario. And he has worn many hats uh, in his literary career from performing stand-up comedy, as he we mentioned once, as he said, at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C., uh, to being artistic director of Canada's premier Native Theater Company and uh, Native Earth Performing Arts. He has been an award-winning playwright with over 70 productions to his work. That's where I was getting that number from. A journalist, a columnist, and as well as uh, appearing regularly on Canadian newspapers and magazines, short story writer, novelist, television script writer, and has worked on over 17 documentaries exploring the Native experience. Most notably, he wrote and directed Redskins, Tricksters, and Puppy Stew, a documentary on Native humor for the National Film Board of Canada, just to name a few of the things that Drew has done. And you'll notice also that Drew has this, this ability uh, to weave words into a way of incorporating that sense of humor that he has. It's, it's always something I've admired about you, Drew. So welcome to the show. As we say on my reserve, grazie. <laughs> yes, uh, that's your reserve, all right. And actually, Curve Lake is a beautiful reserve. It's a very nice place. I was there yesterday. Yeah, it's a lovely little place. I, I, I had to go up there for some, some business, and I was very surprised at uh, the location and just the... It's a really nice little community. What people don't realize about Curve Lake... First Nation is that there's actually no lake called First Curve Lake. <laughs> it's it's sandwiched between Shimong Lake and Buckhorn Lake, mm. and it's called Curve Lake 
because it's a peninsula and the lakes curve around the land, so it's called Curve Lake. And I was just about to say it is. It's a, it's a peninsula, so it's in it's in a very nice area up there. Now we are here today because you do have a book launch coming up on October first. On October first, where's that going to happen? That's going to happen here in Toronto uh, at the, the Louis Cipher uh, Restaurant and Bar on the Danforth. Okay, it's going to be the celebration of my thirty third book. And it's a novel. It's um, it's prose. It's uh, it's a story that I've been working on for about twenty five years. Wow. It's had many previous incarnations. As um, it was a short story in my short story collection called Fearless Warriors, and then I did it as a one act play uh, called Girl Who Loved Her Horses. And but it was a story that I just felt. It needed a bit, using the horse metaphor, it needed mm. a bigger corral than what I had given it. So it was bugging me, bugging me, bugging me until I finally sat down and turned it into a novel. And as I said, it's been 25 years in the making. I'm glad you, you mentioned that because I was going to ask you about how you, you came about to write this and, and where it got started. So when you did start this as a short story, wh- where did the seed come from? How did that It actually started, started in, in a, uh, a dinner party. Uh, with a friend of mine, uh, we were just sitting there chatting, and she was telling me the story about when she was growing up, her mother let some, her and some of the local kids come in and draw on this one particular wall in the kitchen. And um, this little girl who they barely knew would come in and draw the same horse over and over and over again for, for uh, two or three weeks, four weeks maybe, and then literally stopped coming one day and just sort of disappeared out of, the li- out of their lives. And she was wondering whatever happened to that little girl and why did she draw the horse? And, of course... As the writer, uh, that was the seed that was planted in my imagination, and I kept adding fertilizer to it. Mm. I kept saying, basically, okay, yeah, I agree. What was that horse to her? Where did she come from? Where did she go? Um, uh, and you know, where would she be today? And and just sort, I just started asking myself questions, and gradually the story began to take form. And I wrote it as a as a short story, as I said, and then it. It kept growing. I did it as a play. It kept growing, and now I've done it as a novel. And from here, who knows where it's going to go? Maybe it'll be a video game. So, um, yeah, it might lend well to that. <laughs> Maybe, <actually>. Who knows? <laughs> so, let me ask you this: as you, as the story grew for you, not only in your imagination and as you thought about it, but as you took it to these different forms, from the short story to a to a, a one act play, uh, what did you see in those in those different uh, mediums? Oh, that's a good question. Um, that's an interesting question. Um, well, theater, theater is, is my milieu, as they say. I, um, most people know me as the playwright. But um, the story, when I, when, when I was developing it, it, I don't know, I didn't think there was enough there for a play. I thought it's a short story because it's basically just a quick idea of what of, of this girl doing this and ha- playing around with the idea. And I did it, so I, I wrote it. And this was when I was experimenting with prose. I've always been uncomfortable with prose. Theater has always been very easy for me because I come from an oral, oral background, oral storytelling, and theater is the next logical progression of oral storytelling. So, um, uh, but prose, I was trying to, I was trying to flex those muscles, and uh, I had to come up with a series of, of stories for the first book, and this one I thought would be very interesting. And there's just something about it, the, the concept of exploring childhood, of exploring art, of exploring imagery and, 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 and basically 
as a child trying to do something and not being able to do it and feeling the repercussions of that, of, of uh, the, the impotence of being a child. And all these things just came together and I thought I, I sort of touched on it in the short story. I touched on it a bit more in the play and we actually got to play around with the horse coming alive. It was the, the play itself, the horse is played by a dancer and comes out of the wall and dances with the young girl. And I loved that, the, the, the symbolism and the imagery that, that it allowed us to do. But for me, it still hadn't fully become metamorphosized into what I was feeling in my mind. So I just bit the bullet, sat down and started writing it, just throwing everything but the kitchen sink into it. And uh, this is the final product. And uh, we, what we haven't done so far, we've been teasing people because we haven't actually mentioned the name of the novel yet, which is oh, Chasing, Painted Horses. Chasing Painted Horses. <laughs> yes, yeah, so that's the book launch coming up on October 1st that Drew was just mentioning. Um, and I have had the chance to, uh, to read this, and I enjoyed it thoroughly, I have to tell you. You laughed, you cried, you had a cathartic moment. All of that. And, of course, it, it also led me down, uh, you know, the road of memory. Because, of course, this is about children. Children are involved. When the play was originally done, it was called a memory play because it starts off with the adult seeing the horse Mm. in downtown Toronto and then remembering 90% of the story as as kids and wondering how the horse got there. And so this was sort of a bigger exploration of that memory play. So there you go. I was right on. There I went. So having said that, when I say it took me down that memory road... Is because um, you know I think that 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 when you read material uh, books, uh, it conjures up either things that you remember about uh, people you might have known, uh, or or history, a similar history you might have shared with some of these characters. And I was I was drawn uh, to to being. Uh, remembering a number of different things of the, of some of these characters that that were in the book, and and I wanted to to ask you about the character development that you go through uh, as you develop something like this. You know, there's some there's some very touching moments, and there's some very very moments that that get you pissed. Yeah, you know, get you upset, and you know they're they're they could very well have happened, and a lot of these. These these scenarios that are painted, uh, you know, could have happened to any number of us as children, um, and and so you know you're not surprised when you when you hear these things. And as an as an example, uh, just one scene in this uh, where the, where these two boys are throwing snowballs, but it's not just snowballs; it's ice balls. And 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 you know, I remember being attacked by by kids that didn't like me much right, right. with ice balls, and they are no fun. No, they're not. Uh, they're dangerous. Um, and I remember being frightened for my life, mm-hmm. you know? So that's just one example of the things that I'm talking about. So when I say the, the character development, you have to put yourself in the place of each of these characters. And obviously you've had time to think about it. You say it started as a short story some 25 years ago. Do you, do you find yourself ever... <laughs> Ever sitting there getting pissed at these characters or getting upset when you you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember I'm one of my earlier novels. There was a character who who dies it, and I remember feeling very, very almost almost weepy when that happened. Mm. And in this this particular story, um, I did get a bit emotional, not so much angry. Mm. 
Um, but emotional, uh, the scene where she's leaving, mm. where, where Danielle is leaving, and the three of them are standing at the side of the school watching her go, right? And what I, I know it's a little self-serving to say what I like about my book, <laughs> uh, but what I, I, I really, when I reread it and was writing it and, and, and polishing it, leapt out and actually emotionally connected with me mm. was the bully, mm. how at the end, uh, and I, especially in that particular scene, you felt sorry for the bully, mm. right? Because the bully realized he was a bully mm-hmm. and the damage he had done, he would never have the opportunity to to rectify, to, to make good. And he sees, sees, and he realizes his life isn't as bad as he thought it was. Mm. And you actually feel sorry for how, how he feels. And that, that I mean, and in that way, I really like the fact that, um, I've, I've geared part of that book towards towards that, and um, so yeah. So I would feel certain emotional segments in there. There's that. Hopefully, there's a lot of humor. I would smile at some of the weird and fun things. I mean, the mother and all her 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 wonderful idiosyncrasies, mm-hmm. and the father doing his thing, his obsession with his t-shirts mm-hmm. and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, it would elicit a response from me. Mm. Now, of course, as we mentioned, you've been doing this for a long time and you've been, been using these mediums uh, to, to get your, your stories out for a long time. Um, does that, does it, does it become, uh, you know, just, just work after a while or do you always find a connection? Do you have to find that connection when you're doing stuff? Well, yes. I mean, I, especially with a novel. A novel is a, it's a marathon, mm. right? You have to you spend however many months or years working mm. on it, mm. and then you have to go out and you have to sell it to somebody, and then work on the rewrites and go out and promote it. So, it's it's not. I mean, there are writers who do who, who do who you know do a lot of books that they can just bang off in in a month or two, and they do it for the money. I'm not comfortable in a world of prose. Um, so for me to want to attack something like this, I'd ha- it has to be important to me, mm. right? Um, a play um, is a lot. I can do a play in eight days once I've, once I've thought about it and, and, and know what I want to say and how I want to say it. So it's easy. But we're doing a book like this. It has to make be a major commitment on my part to to in, um, invest my 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 creative um abilities my um uh, memory abilities and basically the time and effort to whip it together and uh make something of it so uh yeah it is a it is a great great uh focusing of energy and time and i i am and they come and go like the way I often talk, right? Because I, I, I do theater, I do not, uh, prose, short stories, novels. I do documentaries. I do articles and essays. I do television. Uh, I did a graphic novel. Um, I do all these different things. And for me, mentally, as a writer, there people say, "How don't you ever get writer's block? And mm-hmm. I wish I got writer's block. <laughs> the way it works for me is like... It, I don't know how many people in your audience actually do like weight training, but it's like working out different parts of your body. You're doing prose. That's a whole different skill. That's a whole different set of your mind. You're doing a plays. You're, um, that's again, a different skill. That's basically almost all um, uh, uh, dialogue. You're doing a documentary. You are writing um, an article, an essay, creative nonfiction they all require different energy, different perspectives. And so when you finish one, when I finish a novel, I'm exhausted. Mm. I do not want to go near another novel for a year or two years, three years. 
So I'll go and do a play, which is a completely different set. And then when that's done, I'll go write uh, a couple essays or something like that. And then when that's done, maybe I will go and work on a documentary or something like that. So it's working out different parts of, of, of my, my mental body. You know, one day it's shoulders and arms and next day it's back and chest, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's still working out, but you're using different muscles that don't get exhausted. Right. Uh, now, you've just heard the voice of Drew Hayden-Taylor, who is my guest on the show today on Element FM, and you're listening in Toronto and Ottawa. And as you just heard uh, Drew's ability to to explain things in a very sort of visual kind of manner that he just used uh, and get the point across that he's trying to convey uh, by uh, by juggling those things in a manner that allows you to maybe look at it a way you hadn't thought of. And... I think it's called a metaphor. There you go. Possibly. <laughs> so, Drew, um, you know, uh, as you were talking, a number of things were going through my head, especially when you said, you know, you get connected to, to something like this, like a novel. It takes a long time. It's grueling. You, you want to break from it after a while. You don't want to look at something like that. I guess the other thing I'm wondering about is... Uh, I. I as an artist who who is involved with with uh, creating something, do you look at your your pieces once they're completed, and and you send them out there, much like a child? Sorry, I don't much quite like understand. A, so, so I, 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 it, it's done. Yeah, it's completed, and now you're you know you send it out there, much like a child gets sent out in the world on their own. Uh, yeah, it's um, this is when you feel vulnerable. Yeah, it's when you send it out and. <laughs> Um, this this was rejected by three other publishers, mm. um, and I have to say it justifiably, because um, <laughs> I sort of I, I I wrote it and then I went off in a different track on one segment of it, and I that wasn't my strength as as the editor for Cormorant said I was, it was just scaffolding for the other stuff. So I yanked a third of the novel out, and I focused on 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 the kids, and then I uh, on the contemporary element. I just restructured it, and then it really came together and was mm. really strong, and 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 got got published. So yeah, sending it out, you you sit there, you work on it for however long, you put your heart and your soul into it, and then you send it out, and that's when and you sit by the phone. It's like prom night, or <laughs> or it's like looking for a date for prom night. You sit, you leave a message. And you're sitting back waiting for somebody to call and say, I'd love to go to the prom with you. Um, and, yeah, I did this three times. And each time um, people found flaws in it. And as I said, justifiably, there's that old saying in the writing community, there's no such thing as a, uh, as a good writer, only a good rewriter. Mm-hmm. You know? So they got, they got the writer and uh, Cormorant Press got the, the rewriter. Uh, so, yeah, so it's... Um, you take your heart in your hand and uh, you sit back and you wait for the good news. When you were when when you were writing this, and I'm wondering, you said it, you know rewriting is important and 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 those kind of things, and you tore out a third of this. Um, I I was wondering as I read through the story, and and at the end, there's a, there's a bit of a not a surprise, but a, 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 you know there's a, there's a portion of this where the kids want to help, and what ends up being brought in, of course, the Children's Aid Society. Now, oh, there's a there's a, a bit of a dagger, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, because we are all familiar with with the uh, indigenous relationship in that front. Um, but I took it in a different direction. You did. 
You did. Yeah. And an accurate one, too. I mm. did a bit of research, and mm-hmm. that is that is one of the current policies they have right now, which which right now wrongly is, is, is what is done now. Yeah. Um, it was a bit of a surprise, though, <laughs> to, to see that you did take that in a different direction. Uh, probably not expected. But... Um, but it, it does again add to the frustration of what you're what you're reading about as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you are, if I can go off topic a little bit. Something I read about you is you you like science fiction. Who doesn't? I don't know. It's a good point. I love it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, always been a big fan of science fiction, and you brought that back about uh, you know in terms of storytelling in, in this. This uh, uh, an oral tradition is indigenous, mm-hmm. and, and in terms of using different mediums, especially with either audio and video, uh, film, uh, very oral based because it's kind of bringing it first full circle. Right, right. Well, I, um, I've always been interested in, in in science fiction. I remember as a kid watching Star Trek, uh, you know, all that Star Wars, and I remember I remember living in Curve Lake on the reserve, and this, uh, a television series appeared. I don't know if you remember a show called Space 1999. Yeah. I loved that show. <laughs> loved that show. And so it stayed with me, but indigenous people don't have... A, a, in the dominant culture, a lot of people don't perceive indigenous people as having a relationship with science fiction. You know, it's always looking at the past, looking where we came from, looking what we what we've lost and are trying to regain. It's more of a they think we're looking backwards rather than forwards. And I have totally always disagreed with this because I've uh, I've sort of looked at it from the perspective of um, well, first of all. Um, we have, and speaking from the Anishinaabe perspective, we have legends of uh, star people coming down to Earth and interacting with Earth people. And other cultures, uh, including the Anishinaabe, have stories of, of um, uh, uh, Native people going up to the stars. In fact, the, uh, if I remember correctly, the Haudenosaunee, the, the Pleiades, the, the Seven Dancers, mm. I think, is, is a similar type story. I mean, even if you look at uh, Sky Woman, Falling through a hole in the sky, yeah. coming down. I mean, what what's that hole? A multi-parallel space-time inversion of some yeah. sort. So you've got that. You've got um, and you've got um, petroglyphs and pictographs. Mm. A lot of those petroglyphs and pictographs look very, very suspicious. Yes. So I think we've always had the ability to do that. It's always there. And so I just got tired of waiting, and I sat down and I wrote a series of, of short stories. And I think about three years ago. Um, my collection of native uh, science fiction uh, themed short stories came out called Take Us to Your Chief and Other Stories, which has been very, very successful. Uh, I think, thanks for saying that. And thanks for getting back to the idea of the, uh, of, of the creation stories and those kind of things, because it, it does tend, if you look at it a little, a little closer, uh, it leaves one wondering if, in fact, uh, there isn't some truth to these things that it goes beyond just creation stories that maybe, maybe we actually did come from the stars. Well, all stories, they say all stories, all legends have some basis in fact. Mm. You know, they've just been ex- uh, expanded upon and, and filtered through different uh, different methods of understanding. Mm. You're listening to Moment of Truth on Element FM. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest is Drew Hayden Taylor. We're going to take a short pause and be right back after this.
Welcome back to Moment of Truth. My guest on the show is Drew Hayden Taylor. It is a pleasure to have him on the show. Uh, I haven't spoken with with Drew for quite some time. I haven't it's seen been a him. few years. Yes. Yeah. So it's really it's very nice to uh, reacquaint ourselves and and I've got a bit gray. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, well, didn't we all? <laughs> um, and it's great. We're here talking about Chasing Painted Horses, which is the new uh, novel that Drew has coming out, and it will be dropped October 1st in Toronto. You want to say where again, Drew? Where is that happening? Well, the actual book will be released, about, I think, yeah. a week before that at your at your local bookstore. Mm. But this particular um, launch is going to be at Louis Cipher uh, on uh, Danforth. I forget the uh, the street address, but it's somewhere near Chester. And, you know, the other thing, Drew, uh, we were talking about imagery and, and stories and those kind of things just before the break. Um, I, we were talking about petroglyphs and those kind of things. And it brings me back to, in a way, the way you start this novel, uh, which is, of course, talking about graffiti uh, on the walls. And it's very interesting how you tie that in with, with this horse. Um, uh, you want to elaborate on that? Well, yes. I mean, the the the, the book starts in a contemporary time uh, where a, a, a man named Ralph, who's a Toronto police officer, is on his way home from duty. And he comes up in lower, um, I think it's lower Bathurst area where there's a lot of uh, um, graffiti painted walls. And he comes upon this image of this horse that's been painted on the wall. And it clicks within his mind a similar image he saw when he was a child from this young girl on the reserve who drew a very similar horse, and he starts putting two and two together. And um, and that's how our story gets started. He starts uh, investigating now, and as the kid, as in when he was a child too, they start investigating back then. And sort of a, a parallel journey of exploration on the same character 25 years apart. Yeah. And, you know, as I was reading through this, especially with the recurring horse image and, and how they refer to it and 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 it looks at them almost like it's watching them as they walk across the floor and those kind of things. And I thought it's very interesting because a horse, a real horse, if you look at a horse, you know, just the way their eyes are, uh, it gives you that kind of a, a strange feeling. Mm-hmm. Are they looking at me? Where are they? Kind of thing, no matter where they are. So it was, it was really interesting to, you know, to have that uh, that sense. Yeah. It's just a matter of imagination. I was trying to think what you know the elements of a horse that I mm. could do. Uh, the the um, how they could a horse, a horse in many many in most cultures is a, is a symbol of strength and of power of freedom. Mm. And I was trying to incorporate that because the horse for this little girl becomes uh, becomes its friend, its protector. It's uh, so if it. it if the girl was older and going in a slightly different direction, it would be it's her lover. All these different things. So it's like showing it's the horse is everything the little girl is not, and what would wish she was. Yeah, yeah, and and it's a it's a, a really uh, lovely way for this girl to escape her world that she's so tragically stuck yep. in. And, it, and again, when, and then when you jump to the future, you're wondering what's happened to her in those twenty five years, right? Because mm. the horse looks darker, angrier, meaner. Mm. But again, on this wall uh, somewhere in Toronto, amongst all this other graffiti, and you know that 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 whole uh, the story around going back to your childhood and taking you back in time and looking at that it made me wonder about that itself. In, in that, how much of our how much of our our per, our current lives are still wrapped up in the children we were mm-hmm. when we were Well, kids. I mean, as a writer myself, 
I have to say, most of my I, I most of my storytelling comes from I don't want to say adventures, but comes from things I did when I was a kid. Mm. I lived in Toronto for like fifteen years, or and um, still, most of my stories take place in a a rural uh, res environment, right? Because mm. that's that that's where my consciousness was developed, and I um. Uh, this particular book is one of the first first I've done where it takes place in where where part of it a third of it takes place in the urban environment in downtown Toronto, whereas before almost everything I've done exclusively has been um, rural oriented. Mm. And speaking of uh, the urban uh, Toronto environment, the character that you're introduced uh, to very early on in the book, who is not identified except for the name Harry. Um, it always leaves you guessing who that might be <laughs> because of how much he knows about all this stuff. How much he knows, how much he feels, how yeah. much he sees. Yeah. Yeah. You're always wondering, hmm, who is this? And is it just his ability that he seems to have as you're learning more about him? The interesting thing about, about Harry is he was uh, in the original draft that nobody liked. Um he was in it for that very first beginning scene where he sees Ralph see the horse and he's like worried going, you know, stay away from the horse. The, the mm. horse is bad. The horse is evil. And uh, and then we get a glimpse into the fact that how he can see people, how they really are. And then that was it. And then when I was working on a second draft, uh, what became this, I didn't want to lose him. I reread that sequence and I just thought, what an interesting character. Mm. What a fabulous! I, you know, I've, I've I've always had a fondness and interest in the surreal, the unusual. I did a sci-fi book, I did a native vampire book, all that sort of stuff. And this one, I was looking at Harry and I thought, oh, I don't want to lose Harry. I don't want to lose. Can I make him more part of the story? Mm. And uh, I ended up doing it because he was just such a fascinating character. Yeah, he really is. He's he's really a good part of the story for sure. Um, a man who lives on Tim Horton's donuts and coffee. And there you go. I was just going to bring you brought. <laughs> you, I was going to say you brought in some other Canadian staples, such as <laughs> Tim Hortons. He couldn't be without that. And and how he uh, lives over his his warm uh, air grate uh, on, yep. in the city, just like many uh, homeless people do. And of course, always finding uh, someone to to offer a, a warm lunch or a Tim Hortons double yep. double. That's right. Yeah, I personally can't stand double doubles. No. <laughs> A lot of people like them, though. Good for them. That's right. Um, so we've we've talked about what else can we do? You want to share about the book that we haven't touched on? Um, it's a good question. Yeah, for me, the book is, as I said, it's a, it's a celebration of art, what art can do, mm. what art can show, because they have all sorts of um, programs that people take for art therapy, right? Yeah. And to me, this particular thing is sort of my own personal exploration of art therapy. What what is it for the young girl when she's young? What does the horse represent when she's young? And then what does the horse represent or reflect when she's older? And I sort of was sitting there going through that, looking at that, and it was just sort of it was exciting to write. It was exciting to write. It was also exciting for myself to go back and put myself in that mindset of being a kid, you know, mm. sort of going back and what I, I was. This the kids segment takes place in the '90s, and I was not a kid in the '90s. But it's so interesting to think that's when the internet was the internet coming, was coming in, yeah, and right. stuff like that. They mentioned that in the book, right? And uh, all the, all the kids' perspective: what was important to them, what wasn't important to them. Um, you know, uh, girls hated boys, all that sort of stuff, and sort of wrap my mind around it and 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 take it and run with it. 
And um, what was really fun for me was the very ending, mm. right? In, in High Park, mm-hmm. right? And, well, the question is, did I end it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's another one of those. Um, you know, I wanted to uh, I wanted to to ask you about. Um, oh, my mind just went blank. Um, as long as it's not a math question. No, it wasn't a math question. It did have to do with. Uh, oh, uh, I know what it was. It was the way that the the horse and through the drawing that Danielle did on the everything wall that was in the kitchen. And I was wondering at some point, oh, I wonder if he was going to call it the everything wall at some point. But um, when, when, when they're all so amazed by this, this girl's ability and they're, they're stunned by her, her ability to, 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 to bring this horse uh, that they see on this wall and they don't want to remove it. It's so, it's so wonderful to them. And yet Danielle, you know, invited back in to, to do a second rendering uh, and and she's upset that it's still there. Yeah. And it was interesting to learn how she perceives drawing that horse. Right. It's it's it's, it's a living thing for her. It's not about seeing it. It's, it's the about, process. It's the process. It's the process of creation. Yeah. You know. And you know, I, yeah. I, I, when I was putting it together, I was sort of thinking about that. And I mean, we've all done jigsaw puzzles. Mm-hmm. Nobody really keeps jigsaw <laughs> puzzles. They they put them together. It's fun. Okay. Back in the box or. Or or different different things like model airplanes, uh, different things like that. So, for her, it's the process of creation. The horse gives birth to the horse, mm-hmm. and once the horse the horse is there, uh, she rapidly loses interest. Yeah, um, it, it, it's like this. It, it's like this thing that is regenerated. In real time, and and every her. time she do, redoes it, yeah. it, it changes, it yeah. morphs, it, it reflects more of, I don't know who she is, yeah. her her darker side or better mm-hmm. side, if, if if her better side was allowed to to develop, yeah, it was it's it's a Rorschach about who she is and where she is, yeah, and and I guess the other thing that was really interesting about it is what it stimulated in the other children. Mm. All of a sudden, they were interested, and they weren't their rambunctious selves. Uh, they had changed. It had it had affected them. They in bonded. A, yeah, yeah. It was really interesting yeah. to see how that simple, uh, as you say, how art can can affect. And uh, and and so yeah, it's a wonderful story. I recommend everybody pick it up and read it and enjoy it. Christmas is in a few months. Pick a do- pick up a dozen. <laughs> pick up a dozen. Baker's dozen. <laughs> Baker's dozen. Um, now, Drew, you are, of course, not only doing this kind of thing. You've taken a break. You've got this done. You're also involved with other things, and I believe you're working with the APTN at the moment on the documentary. I'm actually working on, on I was going to say two documentaries, but in technicality, it's 14 documentaries. 14. Um, I don't know if you caught last two years ago, um, I had a documentary uh, out on uh, called Chasing, or sorry, Searching for Winnetou about the German preoccupation with North American Aboriginal culture. It was mm. done for CBC. Mm. It was their highest rated documentary um, of, of last year. And I, w- I went, a film, went with a film crew over to Germany. We, um, we went to German powwows, all these different things. And it was absolutely amazing. We did this documentary that was so much fun and so interesting. And as a result, um, CBC really liked it. And they've asked us to do another documentary. So we're doing one. CBC documentary on 
native non-native conflicts involving land and water. Mm. So we're doing we do doing some shooting up uh, on my reserve, Curve Lake, where there's a a controversy over wild rice harvesting in lakes. You know between mm. uh, the indigenous people of Curve Lake and cottage and permanent homeowners along Pigeon Lake. Mm. So that we've we've um, we've been to Soyuz where they've uh, you know basically are leasing land off and have an absolutely fabulous and wealthy relationship with the local white population who are leasing their land. Um, we've been to Shoal Lake where they had a boil water um, advisory for a number, to- a number of years because all their water is being siphoned off to uh, feed Winnipeg. So we're doing these larger issues about it for CBC. Um, and ironically, it's based on my um, my play Cottagers and Indians. Yes. <laughs> and uh, so that, and on the other hand, we're also doing a 13-part series for APTN, um, exploring all the amazing, fun, fabulous uh, contributions Native people are making today to um, the can- Canadian society. We're exploring stuff as uh, stuff like... Um, uh, uh, clothing design, sports, um, cooking—all these different, all these different aspects. So we're doing that for APTN. Uh, I am halfway through another novel, a native horror novel mm. that I'm working on, and uh, I have a couple plays happening in the near future. Actually, in two months. Uh, what is today? What is today? September, October, and November. I have a play opening in Ottawa mm. at Great. the at the Great Canadian Theatre Company. It's actually a play of mine, a rather successful play of mine called Cottagers and Indians, mm. right? About about that same issue, mm. um, the harvesting of wild rice and the conflict surrounding it. So that's going to be in Ottawa, then it's going to be in Thunder Bay, and I'm going to have a play in Montreal and in Toronto in the new year. Fabulous. As you said earlier, uh, before we got uh, we got going on the show, you're overworked and overpaid. It's the cross I bear. <laughs> um, so listen, the other thing I wanted to, to mention, and you brought this up as, as a past documentary that you'd worked on uh, with the CBC just now, uh, having to do with the German uh, fascination with the culture. What can you tell me about that in terms of why the fascination oh, took easy. place? Oh, uh, easy. It all goes back to the writing of a German author in the 1880s named Karl May, who wrote a series of westerns. Uh, featuring an Apache warrior named Winnetou. And these books are the best. He's the best-selling author in German history. Only book that has sold better than his is the... So um, over or since the 1880s, generations, uh, Germans have soaked up these books and have great existence over there. There have been movies done of the books. There are plays. In fact, this one place in a place called Bad Ziegerberg, um, does a, an adaptation of the play every year in an amphitheater outdoors. And this year they broke their attendance record. Uh, they run for three and a half months and they, they had 400,000 people come and see this one play based on the Winnetou series. And I'm talking, it's a huge production. It has a cast of like 40 or 50. It's got horses. It's got three sets. It's got explosions. It's got fire. The production I saw had a trained bald eagle that flew down over the audience onto the actor's arm. He would sit and he would chat with it and he'd send it back off and it would fly up over the audience again, back up there. The, uh, you know, so as a, 
I had I was wearing two hats when I saw that as <laughs> yeah. a theater person. The money, the expense, the technicality, mm. the the theatrics were absolutely amazing. And the fact that on any given day they had about seven to nine thousand people sitting there watching this play, right? Four hundred thousand in a season, mm. and I'm like, that would be so great to have one day of people come and see my play, one run of my plays. And then on the indigenous perspective, it's like really uncomfortable because the Mm. play specifically deals with appropriation versus Mm. appreciation, Mm -hmm. right? Because the thing about, you know, appropriation versus appreciation is none of these people ever think, believe, or expect they'll ever be native. Yes. They're just dressing up as indigenous people for these powers because it's, they think it's fun. I, you know, and I look back, I, I, the best, Example I can give of that here is like Oktoberfest, mm. ironically. Mm. How many people do you see on Oktoberfest in Lederhosen with mm. the hat mm. and the pins going out and pretending to be Bavarian for that one day? Now, that's interesting because I thought it kind of went deeper, at least with some, because I, I've heard, for instance, of them uh, having native language classes. They do, and they go out, and some of them go out and live in the woods yeah. in teepees yes. and wigwams, <laughs> and yeah, it. I mean, and there's even a group, more of a fanaticized group, that believe people like me and you, because we go to the dentist, we wear shoes, we drive cars, we're on the radio, that we have been corrupted by the 20th and 21st century and have lost our indigenous spirit, mm. and that these people who live in a teepee for three weeks to to a month, a year, out in the woods are more native than we are mm. because because they hold those they, they hold those traditions true and the term they use frequently for people like us who as i said live, either live in a city wear shoes jeans whatever they refer to us as coca-cola indians wow i happen to like indoor plumbing mm. my idea of roughing it is ordering the house wine <laughs> So what did they, is that the take they had on you when you went over there and introduced yourself as an indigenous person? When I was doing this, I had a, somebody email me and tell me that they were in the army and they were stationed in Germany. When, when the local people near this army base heard a native person was coming, they got all excited until they met him. And he, uh, they, they were totally disappointed and totally wrote him off because he had short hair. Mm. And real native people don't have short right. hair. Of course not, right. It's an interesting uh, I, I, little segue I have for that. Um, I was speaking with someone uh, who was going to a meeting on Six Nations. They were going to the Six Nations tourism, tourism building. Right. And as they were leaving the building, uh, a bus of tourists got up. I won't identify where the tourists were from. But uh, they came out, where are the Indians, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and they said, here we are, kind of thing. And, and they were all disappointed because they were expecting to see yeah. this stereotypical-looking indigenous person. And then they were uh, they were asked. Uh, and it's kind of it's it's, it's a funny. It's kind of like one of those those torn moments as you were talking about. Um, they said, "We'll give you uh, if you dress up and, and charge the bus, we'll pay you five hundred dollars." This is the story I heard. Yeah. Whether it's true or not, I don't know. And they were disgusted, of course. Yeah. How dare you? And then they said a thousand. <laughs> 
and then it was a hmm. <laughs> so <laughs> that's just good. Zir yeah. good. Yeah. So anyway, um, it, it's a, it's an ongoing yeah. situation. Still, that, still yeah. to this day. Yeah. The thing is, like these are people who are raised on those books, and so that that's their template for contemporary indigenous existence mm -hmm. to this day. However, uh, I've done eighteen lecture tours of Germany. Mm -hmm. I'm going back again in February, and um, you know, I'd have to say. I, most of the lecturing I do now is universities. Okay. So there's the, the new generation, and I've been doing this for almost 20 years. So the new generation coming out of Germany is now much more plugged in, much more accurate, and uh, uh, are getting to know the real indigenous, not ex indigenous, I don't want to say experience, but as much as you can by study, they're no, they know it's not the Winnetou stories. Mm. Thanks for sharing that, Drew. It was interesting to hear, and it sounds like you have a very interesting life. Uh, it beats working for a living. <laughs> well, you do obviously work because your stories and your plays are uh, something that are entertaining and uh, bringing enjoyment and uh, curiosity to people. And uh, they're they're hitting a, a, a chord with many people because otherwise uh, you wouldn't be enjoying the uh, the the, the uh, what's the word? The uh, spoils of your your <laughs> you know your work, and they, I don't think you'd be getting as much work as you are in in continuing the kind of thing that you're doing. Yeah, yeah, it beats, but and it beats working in a cubicle. <laughs> it does. Listen, do you want to say anything else about uh, chasing painted horses, which is the book we're talking about today, and the the uh, the upcoming uh, uh, book launch in uh, in October and and October first? That's correct. I think six six o'clock. Um, no, just I hope people like it. It's, it's my last novel was called um, "Motorcycles and Sweet Grass," and it was a bit more light spirited. This this has has more context. It has a little bit of uh, gravitas to it, but hopefully, there's still a lot of humor. A lot of you'll have a lot of smiles, and you'll have a lot of serious moments, and hopefully, some pieces that will make you ponder. Mm. Ponder. Ponder. Not pander, no. ponder. Ponder, gotcha. And uh, it's much like uh, Chasing Painted Horses will do if you uh, pick the copy up of that book and read it, and I hope many people do. I enjoyed reading it very much. Thank you for being on the show. Chimigwech, Nyawa, Onishi, and as they say on your reserve, grazie. Prego. <laughs> Drew, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for coming in. My pleasure.